Hey, it's Mark. We're coming up on the one-year anniversary since Halion, formerly the consumer health business of GSK, began life as a standalone entity. Originally formed in July 2019 by GSK and Pfizer via the merger of their consumer healthcare businesses into a new joint venture company, Halion is currently the world's second largest consumer healthcare firm behind J&J consumer spinoff Kenview. Although GSK is planning to sell its $1 billion stake, the company is still partly owned by Pfizer. Analysts say Halion has performed well as an independent unit. Earlier this week, it released updated financial guidance indicating that organic revenue growth for financial year 2023 is expected to be toward the upper end of the 4% to 6% range. Halion's portfolio includes such well-known OTC brands as Sensodyne and Voltaren, Advil and Theraflu. One of its most prominent brands, Centrum, is seeking to build on its brand equity in the vast vitamins, minerals, and supplement space thanks to a marketing strategy centered around customer experience and supported by key data. The brand's latest, and as it turns out most effective, marketing strategy involves an interactive vitamin quiz designed to gather data from consumers in a transparent way that emphasizes trust but also values patient loyalty. My colleague Jack O'Brien recently spoke with James Sharman, the Northern Europe performance and content marketing lead for Halion, about how the company devised this campaign, how it has performed thus far, and what other lessons healthcare brands and medical marketers can take from it. And Lesh is here with a health policy update. Hi, Mark. Today I'll give a rundown of some of the main legislative priorities for healthcare as Congress prepares for its August break and only has a few months of 2023 left upon its return. And Jack, what's on tap for the healthcare social media segment? This week, we've got diminished air quality once again in New York City, Madonna's ongoing health woes, and groomer allegations causing a YouTuber to lose her healthcare endorsements. I'm Mark Iskowitz, Editor-at-Large, and welcome to the MMM Podcast, medical marketing media's show about healthcare marketing writ large. Hello and welcome to the MMM Podcast. My name is Jack O'Brien. I'm the digital editor at MMM. Pleased to be joined today by James Sharman, the Northern Europe Performance and Content Marketing Lead for Halion. James, thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me on. I know that we're going to get into the vitamin quiz and all the work that you're doing on behalf of Centrum, but I wanted to start off with just a baseline question of what it's been like at Halion since the spinoff. You know, we're coming up on almost a year now, and obviously I've been following the company's uh, financial reports, very, very robust business. But what's it been like on your end? How have things been at the company? Uh, well, first of all, I'm, I'm looking forward to the, the one-year anniversary coming up soon. Uh, hopefully, someone somewhere is putting a, a party on for us. Um, it's been great for us. I think there's a really clear purpose for, for Halion at the moment, um, delivering better everyday health with, with humanity. And that's a purpose that I think everyone in the, in the company is really bought into. Um, and we're starting to really see the power of that come through our brands now. Um, it feels um, it feels fantastic to be part of what is essentially a new company, but with um, with a wealth of data and analytics and everything behind us from our GSK days. So it's been a great start, and uh, yeah, long may it continue. Absolutely, a lot of good momentum. Uh, behind you. Wanted to pivot a little bit over towards the vitamin quiz initiative. And if you can kind of give a little background to our listeners about what that is. I know it's in support of Centrum, but give us kind of the lay of the land. How did it all come to be and what's its intended purpose? Yeah, so so we have um, we have 
a product quiz for, for Centrum. And what we did was we, we looked at, at a brand problem for vitamins as a category, super confusing. Um, consumers don't know what vitamins they need. Um, they don't know what product to buy within the range. And obviously for, for us as a brand, that causes, that causes problems because we want to be able to direct people to the right product at the right time. So what we did was we, we worked with a company called Jebit um, to build a personalized product selector tool on the website. It consists of seven questions that we ask the, uh, the consumer, ranging from basic demographic questions through to more behavioral and lifestyle questions to understand more about the consumer, their wants and their needs. And then at the end of that, the consumer gets a, a personalized um, product recommendation for them, depending on the answers that they've, they've um, that have put through the quiz. So for us, it was a test to see how far can we push personalization, um, how far can we push our data strategies, and ultimately, um, what's the value exchange that we can give to our consumers um, that really means something to them and helps them navigate a confusing category, which which we've heard quite a lot from the consumers. And can you kind of detail that last point? I was actually speaking with an executive the other day who runs a vitamins and minerals company over here in the States. And I know that they had talked about that it's kind of the wild, wild west. Like there's just not the same amount of regulatory oversight. Consumers, you know, may come in with the best of intentions, but they can get you know, spun around with, oh, is this what I should be taking? Is this of high quality? Can you kind of talk about that? Because I think it's an interesting angle to all of this. Yeah, so I think fortunately for ourselves, having a long history with vitamins, being a pharmaceutical background as well, I think we have an element of trust there with consumers, but I do appreciate that there are fewer regulations within vitamins as a category, and that, that means that there's fewer um, fewer barriers to entry with, with that as a market. So I think for us, building trust with the consumers is is really key, really paramount for us, and making sure that they understand uh, what goes into our product, um, the benefits of what goes into our product, um, and making sure that the, especially with this this quiz, that the algorithm has been tested hundreds if not thousands of times to make sure that the outcomes for the products are the most suitable outcomes based on um, the input to the quiz. So I think for us, it's it's building trust with consumers, trying to help them navigate um, an industry and, and come to us as, as, as a source of information, initially for the category. So initially, we'll just help you understand vitamins. Once you're into the category and once you want to test one of the products, then obviously come to Centrum and we can we can help you through that. But I think the initial part of this is to grow the category and to make sure people are coming and getting what we believe is is the best content that we can provide for vitamins. I'm curious, kind of going back to the online quiz aspect of it all, you know, were there other ideas that you kicked around? You talked about obviously wanting to focus on the personalization front and being able to make this a really customizable experience for consumers. Were there other ideas or was it kind of like, okay, we're at online quizzes. Now we have to make sure that it's fine tuned enough with the algorithm. So we're going to get the outcomes that we're looking for. We, over the years, we've, we've tried different tactics to try and understand our, our audience more, but most of it 
is inferred from some of the data that we get from our media and creative campaigns. So we might try different um, variants of creative or advertising, and then you'll see that one ad slightly outperforms the other. And you'll make an inference that that worked because of X, Y, Z. But it never really gave us the, the level of insight and the level of data into the audience that we were really looking for. So I suppose that this this project was born out of, I suppose, two things. One, which was let's help consumers navigate the category. Two, how can we build our own data stores and make it more reliable um, within first, or zero and first party data storage so that we can actually use some of that data and get more of an understanding as to what's working and why. And then on a deeper level, how can we understand more about the consumer, not only about their kind of basic demographic details, but what does their nutrition look like? What do, what do their exercise habits look like? Because that for us is a much richer data set than, for example, having a dynamic campaign where you might have a series of different adverts and a series of different lifestyle uh, triggers within those adverts and then just assuming the, the one with the best performance was the one that um, resonated the most with the audience. You can use that and you can use it as a proxy but for us we just wanted a richer data set to be able to build um, more, um, more validated insights and then we use that data to then feed back into the media and creative plans. So we have what we call a data flywheel at Halion so everything starts with the segmentation of the audiences and then that feeds into the media and creative plans and then finally those media and creative plans link through to digital experiences like the Centrum quiz but the flywheel part of this becomes where the more data you can extract from the digital experiences enriches the segmentation which enriches the media and creative and it creates a flywheel effect so I think yeah, trying to navigate the category, definitely number one focus, but a strong number two was building those data stores so that we can uh, we can grow other parts of the media plan. It's interesting to hear you talk about the flywheel aspect there, and I wanted to pull on the thread as it relates to data. Obviously, there's always concerns when I talk to healthcare executives about like, uh, data privacy and kind of respecting consumer concerns around that, obviously in the past few years where we've seen so much happen on that front. How did that factor into putting this all together? Because I'm sure it was, we want to collect as much meaningful data that we can take action on, but we also want to make sure that consumers know they can trust us when they're handing over this information. Yeah, yeah, completely. Um, we probably don't collect as much data as we could because we don't have a, a use case for all of the data points that we could possibly collect. So actually we've been really careful with the Centrum quiz to really truthfully only collect what we need. So by that, I mean, um, we don't collect email addresses, for example. It, it could be a use case to collect a, an email address and then remark it with more information and, and more branding. But we felt at this moment in time for Centrum and the content that we have available that actually we don't need to and by that we're giving more power to the consumer to make sure that they as they go through the quiz they'll see that only the data that they've given us in response to the quiz is what we're collecting um, so we don't want to push it into areas where we might use it we might not 
um, we only collect what we, we truthfully really feel we need. There are other brands and other experiences within the Halion portfolio where we are collecting more data, but we are very careful to make sure that the consumer completely understands the context of the data collection, why we're using it, why we're collecting it, and the relevance to them as a consumer. So what's the value exchange? If you're going to give me something personal like an email address, we must make sure there's a complete CRM program behind it with really valuable um, long-term uh, content available. So I think for us, trust is, is really paramount um, for us. And just making sure that there's enough power for the consumer to opt in, opt out, understand what they're giving to us um, and at which times. I'm curious, too, just how the results have played out in terms of this interactive quiz and anything that's, you know, positioned the brand in a different sort of way. I'm kind of curious where, you know, you go forward from here, given that you've had a pretty successful launch to it already. Yeah, so we've had um, we've had thousands and thousands of completions of the quiz, which is is far beyond where we thought we would. Um because we we were we were testing this, uh, and now because we're, we're scaling it to other brands, we have a benchmark. But we didn't really understand how big this could get um, internally. I think the the one thing I like to uh, compare it to is this is probably one of our company's biggest research projects because I think we've had thirty thirty five thousand completions of the quiz. Um, but if you think about all of that valuable insight data that we're getting from it. Um, when we look at a brand tracking study, we might only get four, five, six hundred respondents of a brand tracking, and we might do that, you know, four times a year. This is a continuous, um, rich pool of data. So I think that's probably um, one of the best performance metrics for us is just building that that wealth of insight on the consumer. Um, and then, in terms of website performance, the the actual page. Um, that the the quiz sits on is our at least in Northern Europe anyway. I'm, I'm speaking about here. It's our best performing page of any of our brand websites, any page at all. And the bounce rate is the lowest. The average time on the page is the highest. The engagement rate is the highest, which I think just reaffirms the point to us that this is something very engaging for the consumer. They're finding it really useful and actually something that we've started. As I said, we've started to branch out to other brands where we have a meaningful value exchange to offer so that again we can we can start to scale this and, and enhance our audience insights elsewhere yeah it's so interesting to hear if it if it works one place why not try and test it out on some other brands and see if its capacity is there uh james i've really enjoyed having you on the show i want to give you just you know a, a parting shot here at the end if you wanted to pass along any information that you've gathered or any insights through this process that you think would be meaningful for the medical marketers in our audience yeah i think the, the the biggest thing for me is for for personalization as a whole, um, which is I suppose where the, the quiz was born from, is that personalization without relevance is irrelevant. And we we need to make sure that we understand the context of personalization and the data that we're collecting. And likewise, we're giving that to the consumer to make sure they really understand what they're coming into, what they will get as a result of this, um, and how to opt in and out. So I think, yeah, it's something I'm quite passionate about um, when it comes to, to privacy 
and data collection. So yeah, just making sure there's enough relevance in there for, for the consumers. And that passion definitely comes through. And again, I appreciate you making the time to go over this on the show and certainly wish you the best of luck as you near one year with uh, Haley on here off the spinoff. So thanks again. That's great. Thank you very much. Health Policy Update with Lesha Bouchak. In about a month, Congress will break for its August recess. Upon lawmakers' return to Capitol Hill in September, it's only a few months before 2024, giving lawmakers just a short time frame to hone in on any health policy priorities leading up to the election year. In March, President Biden released his 2024 budget proposal, which included several major health care items, primarily a continued fight to lower drug costs, boost future pandemic preparedness, increase mental health care access, and extend Medicare solvency. On that front, Biden wants to secure long-term funding of Medicare by increasing taxes on Americans who make more than $400,000 per year, and by strengthening drug pricing regulation to help Medicare save money. One of his proposals involved bolstering the rule that requires pharma companies to pay rebates to Medicare when their drug prices rise faster than inflation. But with Congress narrowly divided, sweeping health care legislation like last year's Inflation Reduction Act has been considered unlikely. Still, there's been one major bipartisan push that's emerged as a priority among both sides of the aisle in the last year. That's the continued interest in enacting more drug pricing regulation through Pharmacy Benefit Manager or PBM reform that has both Democratic and Republican support. Most recently, lawmakers have introduced bills targeting PBMs, such as the Pharmacy Benefit Manager Transparency Act of 2023, which would bar PBMs from spread pricing or charging plans a different price than what the PBM reimburses pharmacies. In June, a group of bipartisan senators, including Shelley Moore Capito, John Tester, Sherrod Brown, and James Lankford, introduced another PBM reform bill, the Protect Patient Access to Pharmacies Act. That bill aims to save money for people on Medicare by prohibiting PBMs from charging direct and indirect remuneration clawback fees. Those are just two of several PBM reform bills introduced recently. Given the consistent push in Congress on drug pricing regulation, this issue will likely remain top of mind through the end of the year and could play a role in next year's election. I'm Lesha Bouchak, senior reporter at MMM. Social media, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, YouTube, social media update. And this is the part of the broadcast. I welcome Jack O'Brien to tell us what's trending on healthcare social media. Hey, Jack. Hey there, Mark. So the ongoing Canadian wildfires have led to recurrences of large smoke plumes blanketing the U.S., impairing the capabilities of major cities in the process. Notably, New York City, where we're recording this podcast, had its worst air quality since 9-11, peaking at 486 out of 500 in the mid-afternoon on June 7th. Most will remember that day since One World Trade Center was obscured by a thick haze of orange smoke. We can tell you all about it because we were in the office that day and it looked like a scene from Apocalypse Now. In recent weeks, the smoke has returned intermittently and New Yorkers have adjusted accordingly by masking up outside when needed and checking their weather apps for updates. Then, in an incredibly ironic instance, the city's AQI rapidly deteriorated Tuesday night in light of Independence Day fireworks. Given the obvious health risks posed by diminished air quality and particulates released by the wildfire smoke, the New York City Council is planning to hold a hearing to look at Mayor Eric Adams' response to the matter. 
The hearing is scheduled for July 12th and will examine Adams' actions, which some lawmakers said was slow and disregarded insights from public health experts. And to that end, the one issue that they're really taking is that the federal response was much more uniform in terms of warning people about what comes with wildfire smoke, how to protect yourself. And Adams was basically saying, you know, if you feel that you're at risk, take whatever precautions, but listen to yourself as opposed to the federal response. So it'll be interesting to see how that all kind of comes into play. Lesha, what, you know, what are your thoughts? And you've been living this just like the rest of us have. Yeah. I mean, I, I know I definitely heard some of the criticism against um, Eric Adams on that front. I mean, I will say that when those two worst days hit in June, um, I don't think any of us really realized what was going on well into the second day of it happening because we were all in the office when it happened. We saw the sky tor- turn orange and I don't <laughs> think anyone was like prepared. Like I didn't bring my mask with me that yeah, day, I- um, was not thinking about it at all. So um, it'll be interesting to see because I don't think the wildfire smoke is going to go away. We've already had some this past week. Um, the air quality went back up again. Um this past week, um, the Midwest was was hit really hard as well. So I think this is going to be something that New Yorkers are going to be experiencing well into the future. Um, it'll be interesting to see whether city public health officials are going to try to create a you know response or sort of um, guidelines for people to um, how to handle this similar fashion to to COVID outbreaks or COVID spikes. You know, we all know now to wear masks, uh, isolate, you know, work from home, those types of things. It'll be interesting to see what should be put in place when these wildfires happen and, you know, the city gets hit hard with with the, the poor air quality. And it has been interesting to see kind of the the difference in response. Like Eric Adams, again, was very much you know, take it at your own pace. And to your point, like we were in the office, there was no sense, I think, from anybody that it was going to be truly that bad. But Governor Hochul has said multiple times in her comments that we are truly the first generation that's dealing with the repercussions of climate change. That was obviously a focus of one of our last issues of the magazine is how that then affects your health. And we're, you know, living examples of that, unfortunately. Yeah. And with the uh, wildfire season expected to go until October, I think, yeah, uh, like, like you guys said, this is uh, going to affect us uh, all for the immediate future. Uh, I guess it just depends on how the wind wind patterns go, yeah, on, on a daily basis. But we'll be checking our phones for that AQI. And I've and I've said this multiple times, not only to you know people in in reporting out these stories and stuff, but just to you know friends and family. That was something I never checked, never mm-hmm. checked the air quality because yeah. that was never a concern. And now. I have to check it just like I do with the rain or the temperature Mm -hmm. or anything like that. Yeah, I think, you know, people who are at higher risk of um, respiratory issues related to air quality. So people with asthma, for example, may have previously been more aware aware of air quality than the average person. But now I think we're all going to be a lot more uh, aware of it moving forward. Right, not just an allergy season, but year round. And we do have to give props to them lighting off the fireworks yesterday and ruining my morning run. Okay, what's up next? So a few weeks ago, we mentioned that Jamie Foxx was recovering from a sudden hospitalization that some speculated was the result of a stroke, and now another celebrity is enduring a medical malady. Madonna is recovering from a serious bacterial infection that left her in the intensive care unit for several days. Her manager announced that she developed the infection at the end of June and was hospitalized to treat it. In light of her abrupt ICU trip, Madonna is postponing her upcoming global tour of greatest hits in order to recover. While the cause of the infection is not known, sources have told the tabloids and mainstream press that it was linked to her grueling preparation for the celebration tour, with some remarking that the nearly 65-year-old pop icon was trying to keep pace with the likes of Taylor Swift and Pink. Another update came through earlier this week, courtesy of comedian Rosie O'Donnell, who posted on Instagram that Madonna was recovering at home and is, quote, 
very strong in general. Not to be outdone, the New York Post, in typical New York Post fashion, opined on Madonna's emergency hospital visit by deeming her the, quote, bacterial girl. And obviously, that's not to make light of her. I'm sure the New York Post was just having their regular cheeky fun. But it is something that, you know, I remember seeing Madonna when she was presenting. I think it was at the Grammys. And she looked very unwell or not, you know, the Madonna that we've come to know and love over the years. But then to see this, too, it seems like it's kind of a bang, bang situation, I guess you can say, or one hit after another. Amid the speculation as to what, you know, the cause of this was, uh, you know, I read on um, one of the uh, industry trades, emergency medicine physician um, had uh, said that it was likely due to sepsis, uh, you know, if, if she had uh, wound up in the ICU. Though bacterial meningitis is also a possibility. Sepsis, of course, being an infection that occurs when bacterial infection becomes systemic throughout the body and the immune system is so revved up to fight that infection that it actually starts sort of fighting the body. Uh, I guess... Uh, like the uh, the papers reporting, you know, the, the grueling uh, tour process, you must mm-hmm. have left her uh, in, a, in a weakened condition and, and more susceptible to this. We hope for the best. And unfortunately, it does kind of call to mind this stuff. And obviously, it's, it's not an apples to oranges situation. But, you know, when Michael Jackson was going on his final tour that ultimately he passed away when he was preparing for that. I mean, there were plenty of reports of how grueling those practices and performances were. And ultimately, it wore down his body. It got him addicted to propofol, which ultimately claimed his life. But it is hard kind of being an entertainer and then just thinking like you're going to continue to be this person that you were for 30 or 40 years and your body can't keep pace with it no matter how hard you push it. Right. Yeah. I mean, you, you see people announcing these tours, the, the elder statesmen, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's hard. It's hard to keep up with the young ones. Yeah. I went and saw Ellen <laughs> yeah. John last year and I loved it, but he never stood up from that piano and uh-huh. I can't really blame him because he's <laughs> 75 years old. Right. Right. Yeah. Important thing is the performing with the hands in that case. But yeah. We, we hope for the best here, right? Absolutely. And this last story is not typically one that we would discuss on the podcast, but there is a clear healthcare connection worth exploring. YouTube star Colleen Ballinger, creator of the sketch character Miranda Sings, recently responded to allegations that she groomed a fellow YouTuber when he was a teenager. In an apology video posted to her page, she strummed a ukulele for 10 minutes and sang about how the claims against her are gossip and lies. The video was received poorly, and the scandal has significantly impacted Ballinger from a business perspective. The recent controversies have cost her brand partnerships with skincare company OneSkin, telemedicine brand ZocDoc, women's multivitamin company Ritual, and food delivery platform HelloFresh. The Ballinger saga is yet another example of the risk that healthcare brands can run into when it comes to influencer marketing. And Lesha, I don't know if you're like me, but I do remember in the early days of getting on YouTube, Miranda Sings was everywhere, and it's quite the fall from grace. But that aside, there is an aspect here when it comes to, you know, how's this play into maybe how brands approach influencer marketing going forward? Yeah, you know, it's interesting you mentioned the risk of someone, an influencer getting canceled or sort of this bad publicity around an influencer. I've had some conversations with healthcare marketers in, in you know, the last year or so, sort of about where they felt the opportunity lies and kind of partnering with influencers, health influencers on TikTok, Instagram, et cetera, et cetera. And several of them have said that, you know, they hope to kind of grasp this opportunity more. It hasn't been as widely adopted, I think, among healthcare marketers. And I think possibly some of this this risk that you mentioned could be one of the, the reasons behind that hesitation, that sort of lack of control over like what an influencer posts, you know, can, could potentially bring some negative view on them. So I think that risk is kind of what's holding them back a little bit. Yeah, as, as if the allegations aren't enough, but then to see a response like that where she brings out a ukulele and 
sings now about not being a groomer, which I'm, I'm not here to make one judgment or another, right. but it was a bizarre. And I Very think that's cringe. how our colleagues at PR Week described it. It was bizarre, cringe. Yeah. And you can understand where brands are like, yep, we're going to take a step back right. from that. Yeah, that this is an issue that should have been handled more uh, seriously, right? Mm-hmm. Not mm-hmm. something to uh, make light of. Yeah. And, yeah. To that, and to that point, too, again, not an apples to oranges thing, but we talked about the Bior thing a few weeks ago with the influencer who brought up the school shooting that she had experienced. Right. And it's like, mm-hmm. again, like, right. how much control do you really have over these people when you want to give them autonomy, you want them to feel at home and, you know, very candid with their audience. But then if that message goes against where your brand is trying to align itself, that can be a tricky thing to, to try and balance. Yep. Yeah. The um, brand safety becomes uh, really paramount when you're working with these influencers. Like you say, it's it's you know, social media itself. You kind of lose control because it's it's user generated. It's uh, it's it has a it has a life of its own. It's not like placing an ad and you can kind of control the adjacencies. It's and when you're talking about an industry as conservative as as pharma. To a lesser extent, I, I guess some of the uh, the OTC brands we've been talking about, but becomes even more fraught. Yeah. Know? So um, you you know you value that independence uh, and that uh, endorsement, you know, from a younger demographic. Uh, but at the same time, there's there's real risks, and and this kind of just highlights that. So thanks for highlighting the story, Jack. Yep. And we should mention, uh, you know, welcome everybody back from the, the long weekend. Yes. Uh, <laughs> just mention that at the top of the broadcast. Hope everybody had a restful July 4th weekend. We certainly did, despite the AQI yep. uh, frustrations. But, you know, we all enjoyed some good fireworks and barbecues, right? Absolutely. Yeah. The wind's the wind's blowing it out. So we'll be we'll be here back next week with right. fresher air. <laughs> <laughs> Hoping for, for clearer skies. That's all we're looking for. <laughs> okay. Thanks, everybody. That's it for this week. If you like this episode, please give it a thumbs up. Better yet, subscribe on your podcasting platform of choice and help others discover the show. The MMNM podcast is produced by Bill Fitzpatrick, Deborah Stahl, Bradley Weems, and Gordon Failer. Our theme music is by Sizzy M. Sohn. We're out every week. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.